So we've been walking through, uh, as you know, hopefully you know, I've said every time I've I've talked, what we're doing uh, this semester is looking at biblical themes mainly so that we can be absolutely convinced that the Bible is one story. It's not 66 kind of random stories thrown together to make the Christian religious book. Rather, the Bible is one story that is ultimately about God's Son. That's ultimately about Jesus and seeing that reality that the whole story of history is about exalting the Son of God is actually what's best for us. It's going to allow us to live rightly when we see that God is not ultimately about us, but rather we were created to ultimately about him, be about him, and in particular his son, exalting his son. When we do that, we'll live as we were meant to, and as we'll see today, we'll be able to actually rest. We'll be able to be relieved of the turmoil within our soul when we try to be the point of history. We can actually relax and say, God is the point of history, that's why I'm Created, And so we've been looking at different themes. We've been looking at kingdom and covenant and beauty and Jesus coming to crush the head of the serpent and things like that. Today we'll look at this theme of rest. We have rest slash Sabbath, this big theme throughout the scriptures. Uh, Similar with covenants, I'm not going to be getting into any debates on how do we keep the Sabbath? Do we observe the Old Testament Sabbath? Are we allowed to work on the Sabbath? Things like that. Um, we have resources on that if you, if you want those. But like we have been doing, I'll, I'll trace the storyline of rest. So let's start where we always start, in the beginning. So in Genesis 1, you see the God of the universe working. Working by saying, let there be light, and there was light. And he separates the light and the dark, and he separates the sky and the sea, and he fills the sea with fish, and he separates the sea and the land, and he fills the land with animals, and he fills the sky with birds, and he plants trees that bear fruit according to their, t- their kind, and then he creates man and woman in his image. You see God day after day after day after day after day. The first six days in time, God works. That's all of Genesis 1, a God at work. And then we see right at the beginning of Genesis 2, the seventh day, we see this. Thus the heavens and earth were finished and all the hosts in them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So we see in the first two chapters, God working. God working like crazy, right? God creating everything that there is to be created. Nothing existed before God. There was just God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And then God creates everything out of nothing, works for six days. And on the seventh seventh day, he takes a Sabbath. He rests And one of the key things for us to see here is that this is not God getting tired. God has infinite energy. The most energetic kid you've ever seen that never seems to get tired times infinity. God has infinite energy. He's infinitely powerful. His rest here on the seventh day is not him getting tired and needing a break. Rather, literally, what this word rest means is to celebrate, to marvel, to step back and take in. It's almost this picture of an artist working on a painting in that moment where they put down the paintbrush and they take back and they marvel at the work, at the finished work. And as we see over and over again in Genesis 1, the very good finished work. And so God steps back on the seventh day, admires his perfect painting 
of creation. And already we see two key themes about rest, two key elements of rest for us to understand what is this that God is doing. The first one is woven into creation. Woven into the universe is a restful admiration, an awe, a wonder at the creator. Woven into creation is a restful admiration of the creator. As you and I set our eyes on the beautiful painting of creation, it is meant to make our hearts soar at the wonderful creator and make our hearts rest in the wonderful creator. Who is a God like this who makes such beautiful things and who makes me? We see that exact thing in Psalm 8. Here's David. David has gone outside at night and he looks up and he pins this psalm. Psalm 8, 1 through 4. Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. When I look at your heavens, the works of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? What's David doing? He's recognizing this first point. He's he's left his tent at nighttime. He's gazing at the stars. If you ever have gone out to, you know, a place where there's not a city around and you can just see the seemingly uh, endless stars. David's gazing at the stars and his first thought is, your hands made this. Your fingers set these things in place. How wonderful are you? How majestic is your name? And then notice what happens next. Who am I that you care for me? Who am I that you scooped up dirt and created me? So we see there's this sort of recognizing, marveling at who God is brings rest to your soul. It's almost like a proper recognition of who God is and who we are. Seeing our own smallness, if you will, brings this, not worry of how tiny we are, but rest. You are God and you care for me and you set the galaxies in place. So woven into creation is this sort of restful awe at our creator. That's the first thing you see. Second thing you see is God's rest, this, this idea of rest in creation, is directly tied to God's reign, God's rule. So when we have this kind of restful admiration for creation, what we're doing, we're recognizing God's work. You did this. You created this. This wasn't here. Then you spoke, and it was here. You're God of the universe. These are the works of your fingers. We're recognizing his incredible control, or as as one of my professors, Tim Laniac, would say, we rest because he reigns. When you look at creation and you know you did not lift a finger, God did. He's in sovereign control. He's in control of absolutely everything, and he's reigning overall. We can rest because he reigns. He is creator. We are creature. And when you acknowledge that, you can actually, again, rest. Or to say it, if you want to flip it, Uh, resting, realizing that you're not God, realizing that he is, is a way to worship. Your resting is acknowledging and worshiping in the reality that he is God. 
So we see the Lord works and then he takes a Sabbath. On the seventh day, he rests. And this Sabbath from God, this rest is actually gonna be the basis for all other rest. We'll see that when we get to Israel and the covenant, the Mosaic covenant at the bottom of Mount Sinai, when uh, they rest, Exodus 20, they're commanded to keep the Sabbath. Here's what Moses says, or God says to Moses. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that were in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So why are Israel meant to Take a Sabbath, rest on the seventh day, do no work on the seventh day. Even if your enemies are around you, even if you're in the wilderness and you think you're going to starve to death, do no work. Why? To recognize he is God, they're not. He is in control, they are not. He is the one who led them out of Egypt when they were slaves. He is the one that split the Red Sea and defeated the most powerful army in the world. He is the one that feeds them with manna. He is the one that makes quail fly through so they might have meat. He is the one that brings water from a rock. He is God. They are not. And they will recognize it every single week. They rest because he reigns. You see that idea of rest. So this is all flowing from this Genesis 2 reality that God's rest is the basis for all other Rest. So that goes for Israel, that goes for us as well. When we rest, we are recognizing, you're God, I'm not. You reign, I don't. You're in control, I am not. So right out of the gate, we learn an incredibly important lesson about rest. It is not just ceasing to be tired. Rest is not just ceasing to be tired. Rather, it's rightly acknowledging who God is. He's creator, he's Lord, he's God, he's wonderful, he's beautiful, and living in right relationship with that reality. You're God, I'm not, therefore I will live according to the reality that you reign and I don't. That's rest. God is who he says he is, I am who he says I am. So God is doing this right at the beginning of creation, and he doesn't just, it's so important for us to see, lest we think God is some sort of tyrant, God is not just wanting you to get in line I rule, you don't. Get with it and do what I say. That is not what he's saying at all. Rather, God wants you to recognize his rule so that you can recognize reality and actually rest in him. The weight of the world doesn't have to be on your shoulders because it's on his shoulders. You can take a breath and know that the one who's actually in control is merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Your relationship to God from creation is meant to be this relationship where you get to rest. You get the blessing of rest. Think of Psalm 23, the most famous psalm, maybe the most famous passage in the Bible, John 3.16. Maybe we'll rival it. But this is what David says, the Lord is my shepherd. That creator who said, let there be light, is my shepherd I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. Literally in the Hebrew, that means he leads me beside the waters of rest. And by the waters of rest, he restores my soul. You see that? What's your relationship with God like? He is your shepherd. You will have no lack when you acknowledge that he is the sovereign 
shepherd. He leads you to green pastures. He provides for you. He leads you by the waters of rest, and he restores your soul. You're meant to find your ultimate rest in your relationship with him. We see it again. Psalm 116. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return, oh my soul, to your rest. For the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. Notice the psalmist talking to himself. He's in turmoil. What does he say? Go back to God. Return, oh my soul, to your rest. The Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. You see how radically different that is than a God who's just saying, I'm in charge, get in line. He's saying, I'm in charge, and that's the only way you can breathe. That's the only way your soul can be at rest. I am meant to be your rest. You're a sheep I love. I'm the good shepherd who I want to take you by the waters of rest. That's why you were created, to have this sort of living, restful fellowship with him. We see it even more as, as we're not even past Genesis 2 yet. We see it even more when God actually gives Adam and Eve their creation mandate. We get a bit more insight into rest here. So God, uh, look at Genesis 2.15. So God creates the world, rests, and then we kind of zoom in on him creating the garden. And we see this in Genesis 2.15. The Lord took man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Now, Again, literally, the Hebrew for put there is made to rest. So we haven't, there's, there's no sweat yet. Right? That comes in the fall, we'll see. God makes a garden and puts man and later woman in the middle of the garden so that they might rest in the garden and work it. So now we see two things intertwined that usually we think are opposites, work and rest. We usually think work hard, play hard, right? Those are opposite things. In creation, we see, we see they're two sides of the same coin. Adam and Eve, as they were meant to push the garden out, if you will, fill the earth and subdue it for his great name's sake, they were meant to do it without thorns or thistles, without any sweat that would come from Adam's brow. Again, that's all a result of sin. They're meant to do it from this place of rest in God. They're meant to be gardeners who walk and rest in God in the cool of the day. Meant to work from this place of rest, have restful work, if you will. So two sides of rest that we'll see all throughout the rest of this teaching is there's physical rest, physical rest, uh, which we can empathize with. Again, uh, it's hard for us to imagine in creation because we only think of us working really hard and getting exhausted and needing to sleep. Uh, and us sweating and things like that, but that's all post-fall, so it's hard for us to imagine pre-fall, but somehow Adam and Eve are meant to work from this place of constant rest, constant physical rest. Maybe rest is only life-giving to them as they acknowledge that God is the ruler. And then we see this sort of spiritual rest, this rest for your soul, this inner rest that comes from right relationship with God, from fellowship with God. Have you ever been uh, in a situation where your world's just falling apart and someone, maybe your dad or someone who just, you know, cares for you with all their heart comes and just gives you a big hug. And in that moment, you don't know how, but you have this just inner sense of it's going to be okay. I don't know how, I can't think of the details how, but just this person's care and embrace lets my soul take a breath. 
right? My dad's a big guy, and so when he hugs me, he literally, like, envelops me, so I forget the world exists, right, because his arms are so huge. And you just have that unexplainable inner sense of, it's okay, right? There's this rest for your soul, even for a split second, even when you know it's going to be tough. There is no anxiety. There is no restlessness in the bosom of the Creator, in the bosom of your Father. Fellowship with Him brings this soul rest. Not only does He bring the feeling that it's going to be okay, He's the one in control of everything who promises you, I'll work everything bad out for your good. It will be okay. Those two sides of rest, physical rest and then this inner spiritual rest, rest for your soul that can only be found in right relationship with him. So that's a firm foundation the first two chapters of the scriptures have set for us of rest in God, rest this admiration of him as creator. As we look at the world, we say, wow, how majestic is your name? Who am I that you care for me? That even makes me think your name is that much more majestic. We can rest because he reigns. We're meant to live in fellowship with him as our good shepherd, and that's where we find true rest. And then we're meant to work from this place of rest in him. Feel the earth and subdue it, right? Take dominion for his name's sake. Work hard, work a lot, but from this place of rest with the Lord. And as you've seen week after week, you know what's coming next, right? This great setup, we get two chapters in and then chapter three is a big cosmic buzzkill, right? We, we, we are used to everything gets ruined in Genesis 3 and that's exactly what happens when it comes to our rest. If we're meant to rest because he reigns, we lose our rest because we try to reign. Adam and Eve decide, I don't actually think I want you in charge. I don't think I want you to be the one to tell me what is good and what is evil. I don't think I want you to be God. I don't think I want you to reign. In fact, I think I want to determine for myself what is good and what is evil. And this fruit looks like it's good for food. It's desirable to my eyes, so I'm going to decide it's okay. I'm going to step in your place, God. I'm going to reign. And the second they do, they lose their rest. They instantly know they're naked. They feel for the first time in their life their souls flooded with shame and angst and restlessness, and they sprint for fig leaves to cover this tragic reality that they've just introduced. They can no longer walk with him in the cool of the day. They no longer have immediate access to the good shepherd and the still waters of his nearness. All of a sudden, paradise rest flees from creation because Adam and Eve said, we don't want you to reign, we want to reign. And look specifically at the curses. We lose physical rest. Again, I said we see these two themes. We lose physical rest, Genesis 3, 7 through 19, Actually, I just have, sorry, it should be 17 through 19. Uh, and, and to Adam, so this is God uh, pronouncing the curses on Eve and Adam. Eve, uh, filling the earth will be really painful. Childbirth will be really painful. Adam subduing the earth will be really painful. Look in particular, Adam says, or God says to Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. 
In pain shall you eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it will bring forth for you, and you shall eat plant and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Notice what the curse is. No longer, Adam, will you have restful work. Now when you work, it will be exhausting. Sweat will come from you and it will be frustrating. Rather than glorious, beautiful paradise garden fruit, thorns and thistles will be the fruit of your difficult work. You see that? Physical rest, gone. Now exhaustion is an ever-present reality. Frustration in work is an ever-present reality. There is no more restful work, and then worse, we lose rest for our souls. That comes from nearness with him, Genesis 22, or 3, 22. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground to which he was taken. He drove out the man at the east of the garden of Eden and he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And so they've lost physical rest and here they lose the rest for their souls. They're sent out of his presence. They no longer again can rest in his bosom knowing that you are the creator who scooped up dirt and we have instant access to you. We can walk with you in the cool of the day. No longer can his arms be wrapped around them. Rather, anxiety, stress, restlessness will be an ever-present reality of the sinful human soul that everyone in this room can testify to. Everyone in this room and every human being that's existed post-Genesis 3 knows the restlessness of our souls, knows the exhaustion of our souls, knows there are so many days where you just say, what's the point of all this? What are we doing here? I just want to quit. I just want some relief, and there's none here. No matter how good things are going in your life, you feel this inner restlessness of getting kicked out of the garden. And we are kicked out of the garden. Adam and Eve and all of us with them. And with them we lose rest. And hopefully, as used to Genesis 3 as you are. Everything's great in creation. And you're like, we know what's coming next. Genesis 3. Hopefully you're just as used to Genesis 3.15. That your faithful God in the midst of high-handed rebellion against his glory and his goodness to us says, one day I will send someone who will crush the head of the serpent and he will undo all that has come about in this tragic chapter and he will bring you back. There's this promise of one day through someone we might be brought back to our perfect rest in him in Genesis 3.15. And if you keep reading Genesis, you know one of the main ways, the main way God is going to launch out on this kind of plan of redemption is through Abraham's family. He calls Abraham, says, through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed through your offspring. Right? This offspring that's promised in Genesis 3.15 is actually going to come through you. And Abraham's family becomes Israel. And we see because Israel are God's covenant people. God's made a covenant with Abraham and his family 
the idea of rest is going to, like with Adam and Eve, play a very key role in their relationship to God. In fact, we're going to see those two main themes, physical rest and wandering or soul rest. So with Israel, you see, again, we've already referenced it before, God makes a covenant with them. He delivers them from Egypt. I want to be your God. I want you to be my people. And they say, all the Lord says we will do. And he makes a covenant with them, the Mosaic covenant and the sign of the Mosaic covenant to show we are in covenant with God. He is our God. We are his people is the Sabbath. Is the Sabbath. So let's read uh, Exodus 20 again. We've got some more verses in here. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall do no work. You or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that was in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the seventh day and made it holy. So in the same way that woven into creation is meant to be this recognition that he is God, we are not, we rest because he reigns, woven into Israel's relationship with God. Woven into the Mosaic Covenant, Israel's covenant with God, where he will be their God and they will be his people, is this recognition. You're the one that brought us out of Egypt. You're the one that split the Red Sea. You're the one that feeds us with manna. You're the one who defeats our enemies. You're the one who makes our crops grow, not us. We can rest on the Sabbath because you reign this constant recognition. It's not just a random ritual that God wants to throw out. He wants this relationship, this Eden-like relationship, piece back together. You reign so we can rest. And notice here, it's not just Israel who rests. It's their children. It's their servants. It's their animals, right? Because God is the God of all. He's not just the God of Egypt. He's the God of all of creation, we even see later in the covenant, specifically in Leviticus, they're meant to let the land rest. The land is meant to take a Sabbath because, again, they're meant to recognize God is the one who makes their crops grow. As good of farmers as you Israelites are, God is the one who brings the increase. God is the one who makes the tomatoes sprout. I don't know anything about gardening, but God's doing it, right? They let the land rest so that they know it's not up to us. It's up to him. You're the one who feeds us. John uh, Lanzma, don't know if that's, a, that's how you say his name, says this. Sabbaths for Israel were a way of teaching Israel man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So that's their rest from physical labor. Right? That's their physical rest, the Sabbath. And then again, this key theme of rest in God's relationship with Israel is going to be rest from their wandering, something we see over and over and again, this kind of soul rest for Israel. So in particular, the promised land is often called the land of their rest. This is where God will bring you and all of your enemies will go away and there will be abundant crops. It's almost this picture of this kind of Eden-like restoration It will be the land of your rest, the land where you can finally, (sighs) the Lord has taken away my anxieties. The Lord has taken away my enemies. I have nothing to fear. He is in control. My soul can rest. I'm not just not working. My wandering is done. He's led us through the wilderness. I can now breathe and marvel. Look at Deuteronomy 
12, 8 through 15. You shall not do according to, this is right when they're on the edge of the promised land, by the way, Moses' final sermon is the book of Deuteronomy right before Joshua takes over and leads them through the promised land. You shall not do according to all that we are doing here today, everyone doing what is right in his own eyes. For you have not as yet come to rest and to the inheritance to the Lord your God is giving you. But when you go over the Jordan and live in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and when he gives you rest from all your enemies around so that you live in safety, then to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there, there you shall bring all that I command you. And he gives a long list of going and bringing sacrifices and worshiping the Lord that's just led them to rest in the land. There's almost, again, this picture. Why is Israel, why is uh, the promised land called this land of milk and honey? I don't know if you've been to Israel. There is no flowing honey anywhere. I mean, I looked. I didn't look everywhere, but there's not just weird, sticky waterfalls of honey and milk. It's this picture of this will be a land of abundance. It's meant to make you think of the garden. What's the last giant land of abundance that we saw? Paradise in the garden. And now God and his new Adam, in a sense, Israel, are in this sort of relationship where rest plays this integral role. And so the land is meant to be this place of rest where they recognize God reigns. And furthermore, in this land of rest, there's a temple, tabernacle that they're meant to build where God is said to rest. What's the primary thing we lose in getting sent out of the garden? Nearness to him. And God doesn't just say, I want to be up here in the heavens and I'll just watch down below. I want to dwell. I want to rest in the midst of my people. Israel, even wandering through the wilderness, would camp around the tabernacle. And when they go into the promised land, they build the temple in Jerusalem so that God might dwell. His resting place, his presence might be near to them. So again, we see this massive theme that ultimate rest comes from fellowship with him, right relationship with God. Look at Psalm 95. I'm going to read this whole thing. And the psalmist here is, is contrasting rest in God, resting in who he is, rightly acknowledging him as creator. Notice all the creation language in the psalm when I read it. Versus rebellion. You are reigning. You are creator. You are in the place of God and what that leads to. Psalm 95 Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are also his. The sea is his, for he made it. And his hands formed the dry land. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. That's someone who's at rest. That's someone who has joy exploding in his heart as he's recognizing his good God's rule over all things. Keep reading. For he is our God and we are his people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. You see that Psalm 23 language. We are not just subjects who obey him. We are his people. We're right here. He is very fixed on us. 
The one who knows the depths of the seas knows every hair on my head. That's someone at rest in who God is. Verse 8. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as at Meribah in the day of Massa in the wilderness when the spies rebelled and said, God's not going to deliver us from our enemies. God isn't who he says he is. We need to go back to Egypt. For when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, they had, though they had seen my work for 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I spoke in my wrath. What's God's wrath for their rebellion? They shall not enter my rest. Rebellion against God leads to being banished from his rest. But recognizing him as God leads to joyful recognition of who he is where your soul is at rest. The opposite of acknowledging who he is, again, we see is just restlessness. So we see this again with Israel. They're meant to be in the garden-like promised land where they Sabbath every week, they rest, acknowledge who he is every single week. They have no enemies. Their crops are growing. They're not wandering anymore. God has put their souls at rest and he's dwelling with them, right, in the temple. So we have this garden-like place where these things are being restored in the Mosaic covenant, but we know there's still no true rest. There's rest, but there's not ultimate rest in that temple. They're not walking with God in the cool of the day. There is a very thick veil separating an infinitely holy and wonderful God and wretched, sinful man. There's a sacrificial system where blood must be shed day and night to atone for Israel's sin. We have rest, but not garden rest, not ultimate rest, not the rest that you and I were created for. We can't rest in his arms in Israel, though the temple is there and though our enemies may go away. There is a massive problem that still has not been dealt with. Sin that exists in your heart and exists in my heart and does not exist in the heart of an infinitely wonderful God. And so they have a garden-like place, but it is not the garden. There is still an ever-present reality of sin which makes restlessness still an ever-present reality. Reality, And to add to that, because Israel are sinners, they are constantly rebelling. They are constantly breaking Sabbath. They're constantly saying, I want to reign or I want other gods to reign. I don't want you to reign. And so they don't have rest from their enemies. And in fact, when God is judging them, one of the primary things we see in his great judgments throughout the prophets is a loss of rest. The same type of judgment we saw on Adam, we see on Israel. Lamentations 1 right after Babylon has destroyed and taken Judah into captivity. Judah has gone into exile because of affliction and hard servitude. She dwells now among the nations, but finds no resting place. Her pursuers have all overtaken her in the midst of her distress. Lamentations 5.5. 5. Our pursuers are at our necks. We are weary we are given no rest. Like Adam, 
Israel's rebellion leads to a loss of physical rest. They can't keep the Sabbath when they're slaves in a foreign land. They've lost their resting place. They've lost the land. Again, they're exiles. They're taken out of the land. They don't have rest from their enemies. In fact, their enemies have conquered them, and the temple is destroyed. God is not dwelling in their midst. In Ezekiel, we see one of the most tragic scenes in all of Israel's history where Ezekiel sees a vision of the temples there, and the spirit of the Lord leaves. And people keep going about their business as if God has not just left them. But he does leave. And when Babylon comes, they destroy the temple. So they lose rest. They lose all these things that are meant to be key to their covenant with God. And again, right when we see the tragedy of judgment, just like in Genesis 3, we see promises of redemption because our God is merciful. And he's gracious and he's slow to anger and he's abounding in steadfast love. And so we see promises all throughout the prophets, right? We see the judgments, promises of rest, eternal rest. In Isaiah 11, Paul, I mean, not Paul, Carl preached this in Advent this past year, uh, this long passage of this great time of peace when the Messiah comes and swords be beaten into plowshares and wolves lie down with lambs and kids play over snake holes and stuff like that. We see this at the end of that long passage. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall come as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire and his resting place shall be glorious. So this promise that this Messiah, this root of Jesse will come and he will rest among us. And where he dwells, where his presence is, will be glorious and by implication bring rest. Isaiah 32. My people will abide in a peaceful habitation, in secure dwelling, in a quiet resting place. What's going to happen when God restores his people? When God sends this Messiah and his people are restored, they're going to dwell in this peaceful resting place. Isaiah 63 like livestock that go down into the valley, the Spirit of the Lord gave them rest. So you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name. So there's this promise that a Genesis 3.15 Redeemer will come. And when he comes, he'll bring rest. And all of God's people, when they come to him, will find rest and will be brought into this resting place that comes with his presence, which again sounds a lot like the promise of Genesis 3.15. Someone is going to come bring us back to our garden rest. And right before your New Testament, right at the end of your Old Testament, we actually see a return to the land. Ezra and Nehemiah return to the land. They bring Ezra with them. Ezra rebuilds the temple. Nehemiah rebuilds the walls, these images of rest. But there's this sense of like, okay, is this it? They build the temple and everyone who hadn't seen the old one cheers and everyone who saw the old one cries because it's puny, if I can say that. And so there's this sense of, is this the rest? The temple's here, we have walls, but we're technically enslaved by our enemies still. We're under Persia's rule, and then they're under Greece's rule, and then they're under Rome's rule, and not to mention the most important problem still hasn't been dealt with, the problem of sin. There's still that thick veil. There's still these sacrifices that need to be made. And so though they're brought back, there's still this restlessness. There's no rest because of sin. We can't enter into his presence 
And when you crack open the pages of the New Testament, you see, since we couldn't go to God for rest, God comes to us. And when your God, who said, let there be light, says to the Son, go, and Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, comes and dwells among you, tabernacles among you, what does he offer to all that would come to him? Matthew 11, come to me. All who, are, all who labor and are heavy laden, Jesus knows your heart. You might lie to yourself and say, life's pretty good. Jesus knows your heart. All who are tired, all who are restless since Genesis 3, come to me and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If you want physical rest, you can take a break. If you want ultimate rest, the rest that you know deep down you would give anything for just a taste of, just one second of relief of the restlessness in your heart. If you want rest for your soul, come to him. It's only found in him, the God of the universe who has come down so that you might rest from your labors. You might take off the heavy burden that's on your back, that's constantly weighing you down. The beautiful scene in Pilgrim's Progress where Christian, who's been walking around with this burden on his back, his whole life finally stands before the cross. And without him even realizing it, the burden rolls off his back, rolls down a hill, and goes into a pit. And he stands up straight for the first time in his life and takes a breath of rest at the foot of the cross. And in fact, the only way Jesus can say to you, the only way Jesus can offer you this rest is he goes to the cross and cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which if you know the Psalms, you know he's quoting there Psalm 22. He's quoting Psalm 22. One through two, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning, oh my God, I cry by day and you do not answer by night and I find no rest. Jesus Christ endured on the cross eternal restlessness in God's wrath so that you might have rest for your soul so that you might get back into the garden, so that you might not just look at God as a wonderful creator who made the stars, but as your father who loves you 
with a love that would dwarf the greatest human love. The love of your spouse or the love you have for your kids or the loves your parents have for you is a drop in an ocean compared to the love that the Father has for you that Paul says surpasses all knowledge. That is what he has bought for you. Eternal rest because on the cross he finds no rest that thick veil problem that even in Israel's best days keeps them from true rest is solved on the cross. When he cries out, it is finished, the veil is torn. That sin that kicked you out of the garden is paid for. That sin that is bringing constant angst in your heart because you've been separated from God is paid for and the veil has been torn on the cross. And as a result... In him, in Jesus Christ, we can enter into the rest that we were made for. When you see he reigns and rules over death and over your sin and over your good works, you can rest. Hebrews dives into this beautifully. The book of Hebrews, we don't know who wrote it. We had some guesses. Uh, But they're writing in a situation where there's a bunch of Christians who are facing persecution for following Jesus. And so they're being tempted to go back to Judaism. Uh, The Jews aren't being persecuted. Us Christians are. And isn't it, you know, kind of the roots of our faith? And so can't we go back? And so the author of Hebrews is writing to say, no. And writes the beautiful book of Hebrews, which if you've read it, is just pointing out every major picture in the Old Testament and showing how Jesus is the better. These are all shadows. Christ is the substance. And particularly talks about how in Moses' day, those who didn't believe in God at the border of the promised land couldn't enter his rest. They were left to wander. But now we have a better Moses who leads us into a better promised land and actually brings not just rest from our enemies, rest in the land, but true rest from God. Look at Hebrews 4. Therefore, While the promise to enter into his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of us should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message that they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed, believed in Jesus, Enter that rest. As he has said, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken. I love how he's just saying, I don't know the verse reference, but he said it somewhere. He has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. God rested on on the seventh day from all his works. And again, the passage said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it. And those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. What's the author of Hebrews saying? You have someone better than Moses. You have someone better than Joshua. You have a land of rest that dwarfs the promised land. Run to him. Receive from him by faith. Notice he's not saying work for it, do good works. He's saying he's already done the good works. You can rest because he's already bought everything for you. I'm running low on time, so I'll skip ahead. I've got a a boy. I've got two boys now. My oldest one is a rule follower. 
big time. And God said, I'll give you one that's a rule follower, and I'll give you the next one that breaks every rule possible. And so he gave us Joe. And they're both beautiful, so we let a lot of that slide. Uh, But Harvey uh, is a rule follower, so he'll do things. And so sometimes I think, is he doing this because he thinks he has to earn my love? Does he think if he disobeys, he loses my favor? Does he think he loses my love if he disobeys? And so he's working for my love. And if that were true, it's hard to know a three-year-old's mind. If, if he is, he'll never rest. He could be the best rule follower in the world. He can never get disciplined for the rest of his life. And his soul will still be in turmoil because he could, in his mind, lose my affection at any wrong step. But if he were to see reality that from the first sonogram, my love was set on him and nothing he could ever do could remove it. He could obey, yes, absolutely. Should he obey? Yes, absolutely. But from a place of love, from a place of total acceptance, from a place of joy, not for love, not for acceptance, not for joy, from rest. You see that? If you think you have to earn the Father's favor with your good works, you will never rest. Paul loves to scream at you, don't even try. No one is good, no, not one. Your best works are filthy rags before him, but you're in luck. There's one who came and lived the perfect life on your behalf, lived the life you should have lived, died the death you should have died, paid for your rebellion, and so now the Father's love is set on you and nothing can separate it. Go read Romans 8. Nothing in all of creation can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So now, look at me. Come to him. All you who are weary and heavy laden and find rest because you have everything you would ever work for already given to you in him. He's purchased it for you. You do not have to earn the favor of the living God. Your father loves you with a love that surpasses all knowledge. If you grasp that, you will enter his rest If you can grasp that, I mean this, no day of your life will ever be the same again. If you come to him, if you take on his easy yoke, if you receive by grace what he is giving you completely by his grace, perfect life, perfect acceptance, and perfect love with the Father. I'm going long. I, I practice this so that I don't go long, but then I don't cry when I practice. So that adds time. I'm sorry. Um, let's get down to the practical. Uh, oh, last thing. So Jesus brings rest, and that's, that's where he'll bring you one day. Notice in Revelation 14, hell is described as this place of eternal no rest. No rest for those outside of Christ, and glory is described as this place of eternal rest where Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and you'll see his face, and you'll have rest for your soul forever. And there's no snakes in the eternal garden. Nothing can ever remove it. You'll rest forever if you come to him. Practical things. Okay. Um, 
couple tips I have for you. This is probably the most practical I've ever gotten. Be self-aware. Number one, know what gives you rest. Try and be self-aware. Does working with your hands bring you rest? Does going on walks bring you rest? Does reading bring you rest? Does becoming obsessed with coffee, Zane, bring you rest? You know, figure it out and then fill your life with those things. You realize your hobbies the Lord has given you. You're not passionate about things randomly. God has formed you, and he's molded you, and he's put those things in your heart. Of course, there's flesh that might try and pervert what the Lord has done, but see, how has God molded me? What brings me life? And then fill your life, fill your weekends with those things, and find out that out about your spouse or your friends and fill their lives with things. There's so many times where I'm just exhausted, but Claudia knows me and says, go do this. I'm going to watch the kids. You go take an hour and I can go breathe and I can rest and I can look to the Lord. So be self-aware. And then I have uh, a couple more things. So try and arrange your days uh, with pillars of rest. So I'll give you my personal one. Morning, after lunch, uh, when I'm about to walk in the house in my driveway and then at night, I try and pray a psalm. So little five-minute pillars of rest where I wake up and I acknowledge this day is yours. Everything that happens, you already know it's in the palm of your hand. All the angst I'm going to walk in, all the frustration I might be walking in, all the fears I might be walking in, they're all in your hands as I am. This day is yours. At lunch, hey, this day has gone bad. I'm tired, but it's yours. You see that? I'm about to walk in. Hey, I've got to be, I'm tired from the day, and the most important job is about to begin, being a father, being a husband. Right? So I just have little pillars of rest where I pray a psalm that's a way of just, I allow God to throw my eyes up instead of just trying to work hard to think of things to pray. Uh, so do that, right? I really encourage you, before you go to bed, think and recognize, I'm about to go to sleep. God is not about to go to sleep. The universe will keep spinning because he is God and rest because he reigns. Let the last thought that passes through your mind before you go to sleep, he is God and he is in control. And I can, as Psalm 4 says, lie down in safety. I can sleep because he's God. You see that? So arrange your day with rest, your weeks. I would encourage you, uh, plan for the weekends. Plan to make the weekends restful. The things that would fill your Saturday with busyness, try and do those. Make your week more tiring so that your weekend can be more restful. And then I would say prioritize Sunday. Prioritize the Lord's day. Uh, Not necessarily because we hold to the Old Testament Sabbath where you're bound not to work, but having throughout your week a recognition of he's God, I'm not. I will stop because I can, because the universe isn't on my shoulders. It's on his. So day, week, and then I encourage seasons of rest, vacations, things like that, time off. Uh, And then last exhortation. One, learn how to rest in Jesus. Meditate on the Psalms that talk about him as a fortress or a strong tower or a rock that cannot be moved or all those sorts of things. Uh, And then lastly, fight for rest. You will have to fight others for rest. You will have to fight yourself for rest. Our culture will scream at you that you are lazy. It already is. You can work 90 hours a week and you will feel the pressure of your culture saying, you're not doing enough. You will disappoint people. 
You will constantly hear, why isn't this done yet? When are you going to get around to this? Even if you're working 70 hours a week, you will have to disappoint people. And you will have to, as Matthew 6 says, live before your heavenly father who sees. You have to be okay with it, right? And rest, prioritize it. You have to fight yourself. You'll tell yourself there's not, not time for this, things like that. But you need to remember when you don't rest, you're behaving as if you're God. And you need to feel that. You need to feel that rebuke and that weight. And then from that, repent and realize my rest is a way to worship. It's not a neutral thing. I'm not just not doing, I'm worshiping when I do nothing. And I'm saying, you're God, I'm not. I'm going to be still and know that you're God. I have some resources for you. We have time for a question or two, Lee. Let me pray for us and then we'll do that. Father, we love you. We thank you that this is who you are. Again, every week, every time I study the Bible, I just think, if I tried to make this up, I wouldn't make up a God this good. I wouldn't make up a God this sweet and this wonderful as the God of the universe who brings rest to our souls. And when we do nothing but rebel against you, your response is to send your son to die for us. And so... Again, just overwhelm us with the reality of who you are where we can just stop and marvel. And I pray that we would have that rest that's only found in King Jesus because we're united to him. Our eyes are fixed on him, knowing that he's bought everything for us. There's nothing to earn with you. You see us as your beloved children because we are united to your beloved son. So I pray that in his glorious name, Jesus' name, amen.